In Session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's get to the books of the week. The book of the week for this week is The Antidote by Oliver Berkman. The Antidote, Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking. Uh, Oliver Berkman wrote the book 4,000 Weeks, which I read, I don't know if it was last year um, or the year before, and really enjoyed that book. And I think he wrote this one actually before that. But um, I, I at times have a lot of issues with some of the pop psychology things that I see both in books, but also especially on social media. And it seems like he's providing his ideas as an antidote to that, uh, specifically about positive thinking. So looking forward to reading that and sharing it with you next week. The book of the week from last week that I'll talk about tonight is Sentience by Nicholas Humphrey. Sentience, the invention of consciousness. And um, in these five, six years of doing these books, at least I'd say 10, I think even more of them have been on this topic of consciousness, a um, very, very complicated topic. Most importantly, I would say because it's so hard to even define what we are talking about or to define the terms. And every author whose book I've read does some work at the beginning trying to define what it is they're talking about and what they mean when they use specific terms, because oftentimes people will use certain terms that mean different things. For example, feelings or emotions. Sometimes people will say those are the same things. Some people will say those are very different things and you shouldn't use them interchangeably. But also with consciousness at times, we you know, have a hard time defining the terms. It's important to say, what do you mean with certain uh, phrases or concepts or terms that you're using. Um, but I also think just defining it is very difficult because one of the themes that comes up in consciousness, one is there could be a sense of self-awareness that, you know, just like when we say conscious versus unconscious, something that you're conscious of, you're aware of, and you're self-aware, aware of yourself. Um, also, there's also this concept of qualia, like a, which is, for example, I'm actually looking at a red table in front of me, and he uses red in the book as an example. It's often used. What is it like to see the color red? So not just, let's say, what happens even in the brain, um, but what is the experience like or of tasting honey, that qualia, that experience, or also qualia sometimes also used uh, to say, what is it like to be that being? and sometimes even for different species. So what is it like to be a bat? I think that was David Chalmers' example, um, or maybe it was Thomas Nagel. But, or what is it like to be a human? What is that like and that qualia? And so uh, a very clear distinction that Nicholas Humphrey, who's done decades of research um, that he shares 
throughout the book about working with animals and humans looking at these different concepts. But he makes a very clear distinction, one he thinks that is very important when we're looking at consciousness, that sometimes people will talk about it as one thing, uh, but he makes this distinction between cognitive consciousness and phenomenal consciousness, and that cognitive consciousness is just um, being able to, let's say, perceive things. So and he says that just because an animal can perceive something doesn't necessarily mean they are phenomenally conscious, which is something that you experience what it feels like, let's say, to taste something. Not just that there's something there, but that experience of it. And that he believes that not that most creatures are not phenomenally conscious, that they don't have that type of consciousness. So even if they can respond to their environment. And we know even, for example, bacteria can respond to their environment to go towards or move away. Sometimes that is described as the most basic form of feelings is going towards or going away from something. And we can see bacteria even do this, that if it's something that might be noxious or harmful, they might go away from it. An environment that might be pleasant or good for them, they'll go towards it. So you can have that kind of a type of a cognitive consciousness, which I don't think you would say bacteria are conscious, but that level might be in many animals that we see. Um, But that the phenomenal consciousness of actually experiencing what it's like also to feel pain, let's say, or to feel those things that experience is not something that most creatures experience. And I'll get into what creatures he thinks does do have this type of experience. So, um, as I mentioned, when you read these books or these these talks on consciousness or hear people talk about consciousness, I think it's a fascinating topic. Uh, I do think often it's hard to grasp exactly what it is we're talking about. I think when we talk about the hard problem of consciousness, which is usually this um, the question of how do our neurons, for example, or this brain that is a material thing, create an experience which feels something beyond material. I don't think it has to be that, but that's in essence the hard question of of consciousness that, for example, okay, we can see the brain cells and how they're lighting up or being activated, but how does that then turn into a conscious experience of something, of the taste of honey, of seeing red? How can we explain that? And actually he does in in essence address that, Nicholas Humphrey in the book, that it doesn't, it has to be, it could be a representation of that thing. So we don't have to think that something has to be red when we experience red or has to have sweetness or be of honey when we taste honey. Just like he says, if you read the book Moby Dick, nothing in the words has to evoke a sense of um, a whale, but the person reading it reads the words that then make them experience visualizing or seeing those things. So it's a representation, not necessarily we're going to find something um, that is necessarily making it a qualitative or a phenomenal experience. Um, and, and this, I think, does make sense. You know, this does lead some people if they think, well, it can't be coming from the physical things and someone who believes that is considered a materialist, um, then it's something even outside. And this could mean it's something from God or it's our soul or something that is separate from the material parts that we can see, it makes 
us feel, some people can feel that it's something outside, and there's lots of theories of that, including, I think, what is called panpsychism, which is uh, the thought, and I've heard people um, share this belief, that everything has consciousness, even a stone or what we might think of it as an inanimate object, or I think there's an example of a mug, like a coffee mug, that everything has some level or degree of consciousness. And so uh, then, you know, it's not just something that we see in some animals or creatures, it's in everything. I don't believe in that, but, um, you know, that's one way of trying to explain this, what has been so far unexplainable for us of what exactly consciousness is and how does it come about. Um, as I mentioned, Nicholas Humphrey in this book, he shares research that he's done and he says it, it shows his experience, it shows some ways that his thinking has been shaped by these experiences and also how theories and ideas come about. You know, sometimes there are some philosophers who will think about these things just based on their own experience, which can have some but maybe limited value, but people who've experienced researching themes and concepts related to consciousness may be a bit closer or have that closer experience that can give them some insights into their own theories or ways that they think about it. And he also shares that over the decades that he's reflected on this topic, his perspective has shifted and changed uh, over time as he learned new things or saw new things. But one area of research that's fascinating that he was involved with or became involved with serendipitously because he couldn't know of this concept before it was discovered, is blind sight. So blind sight is when we see a uh, animal, could be a human or it could be uh, a chimpanzee or another animal who has had damage to their brain, for example, since we're talking about sight, where uh, the visual cortex has been damaged. And because of that, the individual, whether it's a... Uh, a monkey or primate or a a human being, will not be able to see things as far as an experience. So they they can't see. And so he he worked with this monkey named Helen, and it seemed that Helen, because of this damage, I think, sadly, uh, as is often done in animal research, intentionally her brain was damaged in this way through surgery. And so she thought she couldn't see. Now, what they found was when they, over time, took her outside and had experiences with her, she could make her way around things. She would not bump into things. So she thought she couldn't see, but it turned out something was still working. So she had no conscious or phenomenally conscious experience of sight, but clearly she was able to perceive something. And that's another distinction he makes that because of our general experience, we think of sensation and perception as the same thing, that they're they're so linked together that you can't tear them apart. When I see the red and I experience what it's like to see the red, it feels like one thing. Or when I taste the honey, it's on my mouth, on my tongue, but I also feel it at the same time. It seems like it's one thing, but it doesn't have to be that we experience both of those things. And so as he puts it, uh, blind sight is a case of pure perception in the absence of sensation. And he shares that he also experienced this with humans. And so with humans, they there's a chance for more expression, not just through behavior, but through language. 
and other forms of communication to tell us more about what their experience is like. And actually, um, he describes a patient who he says was Iranian, um, and I think her name, of course, it's always a pseudonym, which it might not even be their real initials. I think it was HD, or I forgot what was her initials. But nonetheless, he worked uh, or this with this woman who had similarly, not through an intentional surgery, but I forgot what had caused her uh, visual cortex to have damage. And then she had the same experience where she thought she couldn't see. She lost the phenomenal experience of seeing. She no longer felt like she was seeing anything. But similarly to uh, the the monkey, Helen, when she was then led out to um, walk around, do certain things, she would not bump into things. Or over time, she was able to guess. So for example, if someone has blind sight, you tell them, where is where am I holding my finger? And they will not know why, because they're not having this phenomenal, phenomenal experience, but will point to where your hand is, your finger is, more often than not. So somehow they're still seeing, they're having the perception, but no sensation of it. Uh, to me, it's kind of like this, There's an they're unconsciously seeing, so they don't have a conscious awareness. I think that's another way of, of, of terming these things, is they're unconsciously seeing, they're not aware of what it is. Sometimes like when we have, it's different, but to me it reminds me of an intuition where you're not sure why you are, um, have a preference for something or don't like something or think something is a good idea and you don't know why. Sometimes there's an intuition, there's something that is perceiving something that you might not have awareness of. Similarly, these people, um, there's been many examples of this. There is actually videos. I wanted to see it before I, I came on the air to see it myself, but um, Nicholas Humphrey in the book shares that there's video of people who have this blind sight who are walking around through a hospital corridor where they put a bunch of obstacles and they avoid every single obstacle. And they are quite surprised themselves because they don't uh, sense that they're seeing anything. They don't have that type of experience. But nonetheless, somehow they are seeing as far as perceiving goes, which is quite fascinating. So to me, that was interesting, putting this distinction between perception and sensation when really we tend to think of it as one and the same and you can't have one without the other. But in this case of blindsight, which was a, a type of discovery that was not expected, we see that actually they we assume they're the same because we all experience it that way, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are one and the same. So that was just some parts of the, the beginning of the book, and I want to share a bit more about what Nicholas Humphrey um gives us his theories as to how consciousness came about and as the, the subtitle of the book, The Invention of Consciousness, that word invention is quite an interesting choice of words because uh, it goes along with his theory of how consciousness came about or this phenomenal consciousness came about. So let's go to a commercial break and then after we'll talk more about the book. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, Sentience by Nicholas Humphrey, Sentience, The Invention of Consciousness. And so he he shares some of this research that he's done with um, both animals and humans, uh, even investigating parapsychology or these types of experiences where people think they're seeing something that is um, not from this material world. For example, people were seeing these images of the Mother Mary on this side of this church, but it seems likely it was figured out that the 
the uh, like the parishioner or someone in the church was trying to was in some trouble and trying to create a distraction or create attention and um, was reflecting a kind of like a slide a picture onto the side of the church so it wasn't anything supernatural it was uh, someone manipulating things to try to make people think that it was so um, and so he, he he adds the evidence or he builds his different thoughts for example this differentiation between cognitive consciousness and phenomenal consciousness and that he thinks cognitive consciousness came along evolutionarily before um, phenomenal consciousness and then this distinction between sensation and perception that although we all will generally experience it as the same thing that it doesn't have to be that and so he builds up to this model and I'm going to share it with you and I would have to say I can't say I fully understand some of these terms that he used I read it several times to try to make sense of it, it has some it seems to make some sense but I can't say I fully grasp this this theory of what he's talking about but so uh, he shows several a few different ways two different models of this but that he's saying there is a, a sensation so basically we have these uh, stimulus uh, stimulation and then there is a representation of what that feels like in the brain exactly what that would how that would happen there seems to be some leap here but that there is some some representation again it doesn't have to necessarily be that something in the brain is red there's a representation of that experience. Uh, next, there's a privatization that it becomes internalized onto the body map. And so when we, for example, you um, see red or taste honey, it's internalized. Also, you'll feel it, for example, uh, you see it on in your eyes, you feel it, the taste is on your tongue. And so there's this also privatization internalizing it. Then there's something he calls the thick moment, which is you know, and we see something, for example, and then right after you stop seeing it, you kind of still have this after image on your eye, or if you taste something, it still is there a bit. And so he talks about a feedback loop, and that's a critical point for him, that's created between the sensory input and the motor response. So it creates this recursive type of effect that's stretched out over time. And then he creates this term he calls the ipsundrum, um, which is the recursive activity settles into an attractor state and actually an attractor state is a mathematical type of model or mathematical concept and so this feedback loop he says is very important and one of the ways he came up with this feedback loop was that um, he was working with I think it was a chimpanzee or some kind of monkey and they were testing it in some way that it was the, the, the neurons were firing but it would make a sound because it was being played on a loudspeaker and then it created this feedback loop for the monkey where that um, neuron kept firing in a certain pattern because first it would fire from the stimulus but then it would fire from the sound from the loudspeaker that was actually of its own neuron firing and so it created this feedback loop where it kept going and so that uh, impacted um, Nicholas Humphrey it seems and in developing this theory of how we got to this place where uh, you you have this phenomenal consciousness now he says that for this to happen for the brain to be able to have the um, the the processing power and speed and size to do this it's not going to be something that every brain can do 
And so he actually, and this was the first time I've seen this concept brought up when we're looking at even brain development. You know, I've seen things and he talks about it. For example, language being something that people say that contributed to brain size, or even Nicholas Humphrey himself contributed to some thoughts on social intelligence or um, the size of our social groups and being proficient in our social groups being something significant when it comes to uh, brain development or why we see the brains of primates and then humans becoming so large. Um, But something that he mentioned in this book that for me was new was warm-bloodedness. So mammals and birds are warm-blooded, meaning that we keep our internal temperature within a small, narrow range, no matter what the external temperature is, um, as opposed to cold-blooded animals, which is most animals. So, for example, snakes are cold-blooded. Now, because of that, they can eat far less than we have to, or as far less frequently. So that's why sometimes you'll hear, for example, a snake will eat some huge prey in the you know, let's say a boa constrictor, and you see that its body is expanding so much to swallow some, you know, pretty big animal, but then it might not have to eat again for a month or for weeks. Um, Human beings and other warm-blooded animals can't do that, but it also allows us to be more free of where we go and to not be as affected by external um, circumstances. So, for example, um, if it's if it's hot, a snake maybe or a lizard can be out, but then if it gets cold, it might have to become less active and retreat. Whereas human beings, for example, we, we don't have to be restricted in those ways. And also we can go to more environments. So it does seem to have had advantages, although it also comes with some challenges or some things that make it more difficult. Now, what's also important is that by becoming warm-blooded, this allows for the brain to function more efficiently. So, for example, um, he shares in the book that the conduction speed for neurons becomes about 5%, uh, increases about 5% per degree centigrade, while the refractory period decreases by roughly the same amount. So refractory period is how long does it take for that same neuron to fire again? So a neuron can't fire continuously or um you know, every fraction of a second, there's a certain refractory period of how long it takes to fire again. And by heating the brain or the body in general, um, it allows for the brain to be in this way more efficient, to to work more quickly. And so he says that this, he believes, is a significant turning point, becoming warm-blooded, that allows for the brain to Um, be able to have this type of processing that he talks about to create that feedback loop, that uh, tractor um, state that then allows for it to have this phenomenal experience. And so because of that, he says that his theory is that only birds and all mammals are sentient in the sense that they have this qualitative experience, this phenomenal consciousness, and that all other animals, in fact, are not. So that would be reptiles, or even he talks talks about octopuses, who you'll see lots of um, videos about them, and there's documentaries about how intelligent they are and how it seems like they are doing certain things in ways that uh, make some people say they're intelligent, they're sentient, 
but he's saying, in fact, they are not. And so he also says that intelligence does not imply sentience. So just because you see an animal uh, responding to its environment in a certain way or seeming to solve problems, it does not necessarily mean it is sentient, that it's having this um, phenomenal experience, having this qualia that we would talk about. Uh, he then goes on to even talk about his own dog, uh, Bernie, and well, is is his dog sentient and trying to understand if an animal is sentient or not, or how do we know? And so he does share some thoughts about what distinctions or what things would come about. One of the things that he says comes about when you have this phenomenal experience and are sentient in this way is a sense of self, a selfhood that he says, um, for example, we see in human beings, but that comes about by having this experience, this this qualia of feeling things that you experience uh, in your life, and that this sense of self um, allowed for a few things. One, it allowed for us to, or if we look at it from an evolutionary perspective, why it would be advantageous, it makes us value ourselves in a way even more. And I actually do uh, agree with this line of thinking or argument that the sense of self one of the things that it's done, I, I, I've read other books and other theories of how the sense of self in some ways is an illusion or it's an exaggeration of how unique we feel we are. We each experience our own life and our own feeling, and it could give us the sense of being so special. And from an evolutionary perspective, well, that could help amplify how important we think we are to make sure we survive and to propagate our genes and to make sure we are um, surviving. And in that way, contributes to our fitness from an evolutionary perspective perspective. And I think there's some value there. So he says, if we see something in uh, evolution, we try to understand, well, why would it be advantageous? He thinks that sense of self, it does that. Another thing that the sense of self does is it allows us to have empathy or also a theory of mind. Theory of mind, um, I think he, he actually does say he takes issue with that term itself because it gives people a certain connotation of it. But the theory of mind is essentially that Although I am not you, I can understand or make a, a sense of why you might do something or make predictions of what you might do. So I can see that, okay, if you're reaching for something and you can't reach it, okay, that might be upsetting. And then if you finally get to it, that's going to feel good. Uh, all the ways that we do what we might consider, quote unquote, mind reading, where I can try to understand what you're going through uh, and what you might do and uh, predict your actions, feelings, all those things. All of that comes from the basic starting point of understanding my own experience. So we talk about putting yourself in someone's shoes. I can imagine what it's like if that was happening to me. And based on that, that's my starting point to think, well, that's how you're going to feel. And this is actually where sometimes it could lead us astray because we assume someone else is going to feel what we would feel or act as we would act, but that's not always the case. But as a basic starting point, it gets us very far. Even we can say, uh, and he talks about the golden rule. This is a way how the golden rule works is I say, well, um, do I'll do unto you what I would want to be done unto me. And that's a good starting point. So if that would hurt me, what I'm going to do to you, I wouldn't want to do that. If something would make me feel good, if someone did it to me, I want to do those things towards you. And that's why it could be a, a fundamental starting point of so much of um, a lot of different ways of moral thinking or even in religious um, texts, you'll see this basic starting point of the golden rule because it does get us very far. I think it doesn't take us all the way, but it is a good starting point. And so he argues how 
by having a sense of self, the sensing self, the sentient self, which feels things, it gives us a, a good way of trying to understand what someone else might go through. Um, he didn't mention mirror neurons because that is sometimes overblown, but a way that uh, we might experience this where I can see what you're experiencing. Actually, I feel it at some level because of the firing of mirror neurons. And I wonder if that would then allow a non-sentient being to experience some of these things too, or how that would play into this um, type of argument or these thoughts. And so, uh, you know, the the book is quite fascinating. It was one of those books that, you know, sometimes people ask me, do I speed read, which I definitely don't. And I don't recommend that if you really want to comprehend a book in any way. If you, you speed read, you're going to lose some um, level of comprehension. But some books I have to read a little bit more carefully, even more slowly reread certain pages and passages. And this book was definitely one of those types of books because of, you know, there was philosophical arguments about, um, you know, consciousness and what it is and, and different ways of, of terming it and different phrases. And there were some things that were definitely new for me in this book separating sensation and perception was quite fascinating and eye-opening. Um, also separating cognitive consciousness from phenomenal consciousness, I also found interesting. Um, while at the same time, I would say reading all these books on consciousness, I appreciate getting these different perspectives, different thoughts, um, you know, that people share in each one of these books that I read, and I'll continue to read more about it because I think it's a, a fascinating question, a very fundamental question in understanding who we are. But as I mentioned at the top of the show, I think it's just so hard to figure this out. Even when we talk about this hard problem, I think m more than the hard problem solving it is even really understanding what the question is that we're trying to solve because I think it's something that is hard to put into words or to really understand because it's something about our experience of something which is always going to be difficult to put into words we try but i think we we tend to have a hard time with it on top of of course we're we're limited as we're trying to use our human brains to understand the human brain uh, use our human consciousness to understand human consciousness we could see that there's always going to be trouble when the the microscope is trying to look at the microscope or the lens is trying to look at itself. It's going to be challenging. I don't think that means it's impossible. I don't think that means it's not worth doing. But I think these are some of the challenges I feel when I'm reading about consciousness that sometimes certain arguments are put forward and I'm not quite sure if I agree with the premises or the things that they take as a given because I think there's a perspective there that makes it seem a certain way. But I, I think this book was a great contribution to uh, theories and understandings of consciousness of trying to define things and and look at things in different ways and I, I wasn't familiar with some of the ideas that were presented many of them and so if you're interested in consciousness and try to understand it better we probably or we might not ever fully understand it but at least understanding it more highly recommend this book sentience the invention of consciousness by nicholas humphrey let's go to our last commercial break we'll be right back back in the last segment i wanted to talk about a, a documentary i saw this weekend uh on uh, it's called escaping twin flames it's on netflix three episodes each a little under an hour um and it's about this uh well you can also it, it seems to turn into a cult but the twin flames 
universe, which is maybe you've heard this people talking about their twin flame. Now, I'm sure others talk about it, not just this organization, but essentially it was this it started with classes by this husband and wife who claim themselves to be twin flames. But this concept of a twin flame is like similar to a idea of a soulmate where it's like you're of the same fire of the same flame and that each person has one twin flame, kind of like the soulmate and you're supposed to be with this person. And then when you're with this person, you have this magical relationship. Uh, and you know, it's, there's two, there's kind of twin complaints or twin ideas to talk about here. One is this concept of a twin flame or a soulmate, which I'll talk about. And then also another is this, uh, another example of a, a cult or a cult-like group and how there's so many of them. And actually in the documentary at the end, it said there are, I forgot what the numbers were, but that itself is not important, but that ever since COVID, there's been even more of them, especially these online ones. So I'm sure it's not just COVID, but the internet is allowing for the creation of many more of these, whereas before you had to be in physical proximity with the individuals that you had become uh, a cult with. Now you don't need to have to, you don't have that limitation, sadly. So starting with this concept of a, a twin flame or a soulmate, uh, this idea that there is one person out there for you that is chosen by God or some, the universe, that is the person you're supposed to be with. And I 100% don't agree with this concept or idea that there's one person for you um, at all. So I think there are many people that you can form a very close bond with, a very emotionally intimate relationship with, but that there's one person for each person I, I don't agree with. Uh, and I don't, I, it's hard for me to make sense of it even. And what does that mean? So one person that is of the, the right age also in other ways makes sense for you that you're both attracted to, let's say, if your twin flame is male and you're female, that you're both heterosexual. Is it all those things line up? So even in, from a, a logical perspective, how to make sense of it, I can't understand. And actually carrying over from um, the book Sentience by Nicholas Humphrey, this idea of the sense of self, he also talks about how it, it lends itself to thinking of religion and afterlife and even ghosts and these things that we experience kind of these paranormal things of this extensions of the self. And I think this is something similar, the sense that we um, have one person that we can be with or that not, we just can be with that we're supposed to be with and that they're the, the chosen one for us. Um, I think we, again, we can make a very close relationship with many people. I think what people can experience is the incredible sense of being seen and understood by someone, of connecting in a very deep way, something that feels so special that it feels like it's from another world. Kind of like, again, things that come up in the book where these experiences that we have, it's hard to put into words or to describe where it feels like it's otherworldly when I actually think it's very much of this world, but it's in a very uh, deep part of us or connects in a way that we have a hard time making sense of, but it doesn't mean it doesn't make sense or it has to be coming from uh, a separate reality or something 
uh, metaphysical. They can be very much based on what we experience, a very beautiful thing, but it doesn't have to be um, something external. Kind of the, like, the, you know, maybe it's different, but the love that people feel for their children, you know, it could feel so otherworldly. I don't think it has to be. And I know some people think that uh, takes away the how beautiful it is. I don't think it does at all. Even if we understood the way the brain functions that creates those feelings, I don't think it makes them any less special to people when they are experiencing it. But so similarly with the concept of twin flames or soulmates, there's a sense that this is this bond is too special to be of this world. And I don't think it is. Um, in my own cheesy way, I think that we choose a partner and we become soulmates and that we create a relationship that's so deeply connected in a emotionally intimate way uh, that you become soulmates, but not that it was chosen beforehand. And actually, to me, that's a far more romantic concept that you become soulmates by creating that relationship together. It wasn't predestined. Maybe that sounds, uh, you know, I could see how that's actually more romantic in this dramatic way or this fairy tale kind of way. But to me, creating the relationship together where you become soulmates is even more powerful and beautiful and something that is in your control rather than just this, you know, you have to find the right person kind of a thing. Uh, also, unfortunately, people often will feel that their soulmate um, is someone who's very, very unhealthy for them. So my own personal experience of myself, friends, and working with clients, you see that especially if you've had very disrupted relationships in your childhood, the people that you're going to feel head over heels for are the worst people for you. And the reason why they feel like, you know, you say, I feel like I've known this person forever, even though I just met them. It's because you have met them in the sense that they uh, have parts of your childhood, your parents, caregivers, uh, usually the really bad parts are in this person. And so you are familiar with it. It feels familiar, but unfortunately in a bad way when it comes down to it, even though it feels so nice to be in that familiar presence. So um, some thoughts there on soulmates and this notion of it. Uh, also, it doesn't mean you have to have one person. If you lose that person you, you or if that person doesn't want you, you are, are doomed or your life is not going to be good because you lost that one person. And actually, that's a theme that came up in this group. So now transitioning to this Twin Flames universe, um, and this documentary, that's what they would often do. And so this husband and wife and the husband especially seemed to have this power to know who someone's twin flame was. And sometimes it seemed just by someone saying, oh, someone messaged me and, you know, said a few things. And so there was one instance of this girl who was, I think, 19 years old at the time. And she was saying that she was frustrated because one of the things they would say is that if you go through all of the courses, so of course, once you pay them all the money possible, which includes all the courses, and then you go through coaching and all these things, um, they would guarantee you would find you'd be in a harmonious union, I think is what they would call it. And so people would be in the courses still not having found their, their twin flame. And so this one girl shares that she's, she's only 19 and sharing that she's frustrated that she hasn't found that person yet and they say well maybe you've already met the person and then she says someone messaged me and they the you know the founder says oh yes that's that's your twin flame and she shares later on they're interviewing her that the person felt a little bit creepy in the messages they didn't feel like this was you know at all the right match but they pushed her so much and this man was 
um, at least I think 11 years older than her, was seemed to be struggling with some serious mental illness and did not have a job and was arrested several times. And because of that, he couldn't move, but they pushed her to move across the country to go live with him and that this was her twin flame. And once it's your twin flame, you should do anything and everything to be with that person. Even if they're rejecting you, um, you still push forward or if they've blocked you on you know, social media or from responding to them, that doesn't mean anything you have to push through. Sometimes maybe it means giving them some space, but don't give up on that person. And so she does this and was miserable, but they then would also encourage her to give these testimonials of how happy she was and lucky she was to have found her twin flame to potentially encourage other people to join the courses and the community. Um, Or there's another case where they kept, you know, one of the, this woman had, her, the person that was her ex now had a restraining order against her and they were basically saying, oh, you know, these things are imaginary or they're basically, you know, not real. And they encouraged her to keep communicating with him and reaching out to him. And eventually she was arrested and spent about a month in jail because of, of this, of violating the restraining order because of their encouragement and this notion that, you know, it's not real. Uh, these things are imaginary. And you do see this a lot of this type of magical thinking in these types of um, what become cults, but this type of thinking, this mad, you know, the world is not real. This, these are just breaks. We know the truth, which is that this person is your twin flame. So what is a, a pesky restraining order? That's just small in the grand scheme of the universe. Um, now, one thing you, you know, often when you see these conspiracy these cults and you know you see um, people that are in those cults I just looked online quickly on Twitter to see people's reactions and a very common thing that people will say is I can't believe these people were so stupid it's always something we see in these um, cults or when people join a conspiracy theory or when people um, do drastic things because of a certain guru or a leader um, people are just how stupid could you be and I always think it's important to pause to not jump to that conclusion because yes, when you see the most extreme thing that happened within this cult, any cult, whatever it is, you're like, that's so stupid. How could you ever do that? But what you always have to remember is that these cults, they move slowly. It doesn't start with, we're going to do all these things. It slowly goes there. And so it's not something that is easy to think you would never be gullible enough or stupid enough or whatever you think it is that was wrong with those people. Uh, it's very likely that you could end up there yourself and have ended up there, not necessarily in a cult, but followed some group or organization or way of thinking down a path that was further than you probably would have thought you would have gone to, or in hindsight, look back and are surprised that you went that far. And so we see some of the common playbook, uh, cult playbook things play out here. One of them is to uh, completely distance the people that are now joining the group from their families. And so getting them to see, oh, they're toxic and so abusive and we are your family now. And so often you'd see people, they would write letters, emails to their families saying, um, you know, you've been hurtful and continue to hurt me and I'm going on this path and I have to let you go. And so they cut off their family. And so now they become, of course, even more dependent on uh, the group. And I think when I looked at this documentary, I don't know if they had 
all these plans themselves, even the cult, not only did the people not realize how deep they were getting, but I think the cult itself started to take on a life of its own to the point where at some point uh, it seemed because they wanted to avoid taxes. And in the United States, if you are a religious group, you can avoid taxes in certain ways. So they became a church and um, the, the male was considered to be the second coming of Christ. And so all of a sudden they went from this guy might have some good ideas to he is actually the second coming of Christ and is, you know, like a God. And he was expected to be treated in this way. And would really, you see then abusing and talking to people in such horrible ways uh, throughout. And, and as things got further along, uh, I only have a minute or so left, but things took an even more drastic turn where it just seemed that they were trying to pair people and say your twin flames are within the group and they were primarily women or overwhelmingly women. So then they had this whole uh, pairing women who many of them were not attracted to um, women themselves, but saying, no, this is actually your twin flame. And then telling some of them that you have to become the pure masculine and to change their names and change how they look and even go further. So it, it unfortunately, um, it seems like they were trying to present it as being LGBTQ positive and accepting, but actually they were definitely misrepresenting and misunderstanding that it's actually the person's choice. But again, this guru who was uh, the second coming of Christ knew these people's essences and was telling them. And it was just horrible. But again, um, maybe I'll share some more thoughts on this on another episode because I see I'm at the end of my time for today. But a reminder that one, to not judge people that you see in these documentaries or when you learn about someone being in a cult or following a conspiracy theory, it's much more complicated than just to think they are stupid or gullible. There's more to it than that. But also ourselves be more mindful. As I say, no one can do the thinking for you. No one has figured it all out. There's no one who has all the answers or no one who um, is a God. We're all human beings here and we can learn from one another, but no one is the knower of all the truth and someone that we have to blindly follow. And if they're asking for that, know that they're selling you something and usually selling you themselves. But I'll leave it at that for tonight. Big thank you to Farida here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farida Wakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi.